Go ahead and have a seat, uh, kids. Kindergarten through fifth grade, you guys can make your way to the back and your teachers will be back there waiting for you and take you upstairs to your classroom. Parents of kids, kindergarten through second grade, after, after the service is over, your kids are going to come down and be hanging out in the narthex. That's a bit of a change than from the past. Would you make your way to the back, kids? Parents of kids, kindergarten through second grade, pick up your kids there in, in the back after the service. And I'll remind you at the end during the announcement section as, as well. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it with me this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're starting Genesis chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are in fact some still on the back table. Feel free to stand up and go get one. It's important for you to see the words that I'm about to read in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are paperback copies on the far table below the offering box on that table back there, and feel free absolutely to go ahead and grab one of those if you need a new copy or a copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read the first seven verses for us this morning, and then we'll explore these together. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. When we get to Genesis chapter 3 here, we see the events uh, that are commonly referred to as the fall. This is the introduction of sin into the world. I was reading this week and I came across a C.S. Lewis quote in a book that I was reading. C.S. Lewis once said in a letter that he wrote to a friend, he said, Our best havings, our wantings. Our best havings, our wantings. And I'm going to unpack that in a moment. Our best havings, our wantings. But as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we see the events that occur here in the first seven verses occur around food. You probably know what it's like to crave food in something in particular. And in our diet and fitness-obsessed culture, we're always trying to understand better how to curb cravings for bad things and add in good or healthy things. In May of last year, the BBC released an article called, Why You Shouldn't Trust Your Food Cravings. 
why you shouldn't trust your food cravings. And the article argues that while cravings have been thought to be the body's way to indicate the lack of a particular nutrient, research shows that there's a lot more in play here. One thing, cultural conditioning, like Pavlov's dog, you remember the bell that rings and the dog salivates, or the activity of microbes going on in your gut. And in many cases, they have discovered that cravings have more to do with a psychological mindset than they do anything else or physiological factors. And while this is all interesting information, we find the allure of food right here in Genesis chapter 3. And not food itself, but the promise of something that can satisfy us. The promise of satisfaction. If you're experiencing a craving for a particular food, indulging that craving brings about a sense of satisfaction, we would say. It brings about a sense of satisfaction. At least until you get hungry again. At least until you get hungry again. And so as we look at these seven verses, I want to suggest to you this morning that as we observe Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree that they were commanded not to, it all boils down to a sense of satisfaction. And you'll remember last week when we saw that man was formed up out of the ground and God breathes air into the man's nostrils. If we go back to chapter 2 verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the man became a living creature. First, the man shares likeness with the ground. And second, man shares a likeness with God. The first is low, humble, and creaturely. And the second is a reflection of the divine. And we find perfection described in Genesis chapter 2. And that's the setup here for Genesis chapter 3. The setup for Genesis chapter 3 is found in the perfection described, the unbroken relationship that man has with God, the unbroken relationship that man has with his environment, and the unbroken relationship that that exists within the family. But in Genesis chapter 3, the satisfaction that's which pictured in Genesis chapter 2 is disrupted. And it's disrupted through the rebellion willfully by Adam and the deception that Eve succumbs to. And so back where we started, when C.S. Lewis writes something like, our best havings are wantings, he's saying that which can satisfy us most as creatures, as People created in God's image, that which can satisfy us most is that which won't or won't ever not satisfy us. That which can satisfy us the most is that which won't ever not satisfy us. And what I'm saying is your steak dinner will come to an end. Your steak dinner will come to an end and you'll get hungry again. Your new vehicle will one day become old and obsolete. And be forgotten. Even something like your marriage will come to an end when you or your spouse pass away. And the only source of true satisfaction is that which can continually and increasingly satisfy you in the moment as well as provide increased satisfaction in the future. 
And there's only one thing that can do this, and it's God himself. So what happens in these seven verses to cause the man and the woman to exchange that which can increasingly and eternally satisfy them for something much more temporary? Well, look at your Bible, and we're going to walk through these seven verses together. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 to begin with. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is the crafty serpent. And right out of the gate, we're introduced to the serpent. Now this is one of God's created beings. We're told right at the end of this sentence that more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We don't know exactly what the serpent's deal is or exactly where he comes from. We do know that he's made and that he is more crafty than any other beast of the field. And because Genesis 3 gives us a picture of the origins of sin in our world as we move through this text, sometimes this verse is used to leverage or to argue about the origins of evil. But good Bible readers, which we want to be, good Bible readers will see no such explanation and draw the conclusion and not draw that conclusion because the intent of this verse is not to show us the origins of evil. We are not told why the serpent acts the way that he acts and speaks deception to Eve. But while we do not know where evil originates simply from this passage, we do see where it does not originate. It does not originate in man or woman, and it does not originate in God. We can draw that conclusion. And some have tried to state that evil is inherent in man and woman. That is not the case. That is a stretch. And others have suggested that evil is the result of divine entrapment. And neither of these things can be or should be said by observing this passage. One thing that we see throughout the Old Testament and in all of Scripture is that God brings everything about, including the serpent here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, However, Scripture never, ever attributes evil to God. God bears no moral responsibility for the sin of Adam and Eve. And he is not in any way, shape, or form culpable in the serpent's deception of Adam and Eve. This is a tension. We've talked a lot about tensions in our time in Genesis so far. Tension, another tension that exists here and must be held true. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is the ultimate cause of and is sovereign over all things. Yet humans are totally responsible for their choices and their actions. Now, the crafty serpent who's introduced us to us in chapter 3, verse 1. Now he speaks. And he speaks to the woman directly. Look at his words in the second half of verse 1 before we get to verse 2. He begins by saying, Did God actually say? Did God actually say? Now, I'm a parent, and many of you are in this room also, so you understand this type of language. 
It may be more complicated than the internal processing of my seven-year-old, five-year-old, and three-year-old, and one-year-olds even, but when I say, please don't climb on the furniture, there is a thought that I can see flash right across their heads very clearly that say, did God actually, or did dad actually say, don't climb on the furniture? Or if I tell my children to clean up the playroom, there's that questioning. Did dad really say that we have to? And then when I walk in the playroom and say, hey, it looks like a pretty big mess in here still. They say, oh, you meant now. There's some, do you see the subtlety in that processing? There's subtlety or a crafty nature that comes through these first four words. Did God actually say There's something sinister about it. And now we see what he actually says or claims that God has said is is a pretty big, again, a pretty big stretch. He swings for the fences here. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Clearly God didn't say that if we look back at Genesis chapter 2. It's an interesting strategy. He goes after the whole of what God says and changes it in a big way. He changes it to, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Obviously, this is not what what God says to man in Genesis 2.17. But by stating, did God actually say what the serpent is doing is eroding the understanding of God's motivations in providing a command to the man in the first place. Let me say that again. The serpent is eroding the understanding of God's motivations in providing a command to the man in the first place. And all of a sudden, what makes this subtle and yet heinous is that the question then arises, does God really have our best in mind? Does God really have our best in mind? The serpent is being disingenuous. He focuses on the negative command. In Genesis 2.16, God says, You may surely or freely, your Bible may translate it, you may surely or freely eat of any tree in the garden. And then with one exception that he gives at the end of that statement in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in it that for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God puts forth generous provision. He creates for man a garden specifically for him, and he provides a, a, a helper suitable for him in Eve. And the serpent plays this psychological game implying to Eve that God is not generous, but he is a stingy and withholding God. We are meant to recall again that God planted a garden expressly for Adam. And then he gave Adam explicit reminders, the two trees in the midst of the garden, to remind Adam both of God is the source of life and and his creatureliness, Adam's creatureliness. And then he gave Adam this perfect partner, both socially and sexually, a perfect partner to engage 
him and to help him in his God-given tasks. God gives Adam a perfect expectation of what he requires of him in the, in the garden. And then the serpent shows up and immediately implies that God is stingy. He immediately implies stinginess. Now the serpent knows that the answer to his question is no. God didn't say that. But he plants the seeds of doubt in God's trustworthiness by phrasing his question to the woman in a way that he does. Now one more thing I want to point out before we move on from verse 1 is that the serpent goes to the woman to have the conversation. This is an interesting and important detail. The serpent is attacking the roles of man and woman established in Genesis 2. Man receives the charge to work and keep the ground in Genesis 2.15. And then in Genesis 2.16, he is given everything to eat. And then in Genesis 2.17, he is prohibited from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this all happens before the creation of woman. And now I want to reemphasize that Scripture is clear. We said this last week, if you were with us. Scripture is, in fact, clear that man and woman are equal in their image-bearing of God. Both men and women have equal value in the eyes of God, but man and woman are given distinct roles in Genesis chapter 2. Man is charged with working and keeping the garden, and woman is created as a helper fit for man to help him fulfill the commands given to him including the command to be fruitful and multiply. So the serpent works to erode those roles also, and we're going to touch on this again in a moment, but the serpent works to erode those roles by circumventing the one to whom the charges in Genesis 2, 15 through 17 is given. He comes directly to the woman. Now, if we move to verse 2 and verse 3, we see here the woman's response. So the erosion then continues. We see, we see the woman respond, but there are several things that we must point out in her response. If we compare Genesis 2.16 and chapter 3, verse 2, in 2.16, God says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman says in chapter 3, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now note there's an omission there. She leaves something out. She leaves out the word surely. If you're reading the ESV, that's what uh, the ESV translates this word as. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Or your Bible may say freely eat of every tree of the garden, but she leaves this out. And this again indicates more of a more of an erosion of the understanding of God as generous. It may seem like a simple word there, but it's sowing seeds of doubt. Maybe God is in fact stingy. And then the woman relays the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you'll note that she didn't give it the name that God gives it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. She identifies it by its position in the garden rather than by its significance. 
Again, we explored that last week. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil gives us a sense of our creatureliness. It shows us that God is the one who is all wise and that we are subject to him. But she identifies it by its position rather than the significance given to it. Then look at verse 3, right at the end of verse 3. She says, neither shall you touch it. This is in fact in addition to the command. This is in addition to the command. The woman says that they are not to touch the fruit. God doesn't say that at all. He simply says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So she adds to God's word here. Then the woman also leaves out the urgency that is demonstrated by God through the words, in that day that you, uh, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, the word surely is left out here. She just says, lest you die. There's a sense of urgency that's brought about through the word surely. Now, you may look at these discrepancies and say, so what? Like, this is just her stating it back to him in his own words. And what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the way that this is written is to show us these discrepancies. The subtlety of sin and the compromise that's made and the erosion of the truth that, that God speaks in his word. These things lead us into the deception these are actually a really big deal because they, inter- because they indicate this compromise. Seeds of doubt giving way to the thought that God might not in fact be generous. Why would he not give us that tree also? Maybe God is withholding. Maybe God is stingy. And it's a forgetting of the significance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just calling it the tree in the midst of the garden like the woman does, rather than that which signifies mankind's creatureliness. That's the purpose of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then adding the command that God gives. And then reducing the urgency of adhering to what God has commanded. And as each of these things complicates the compromise, it sets up the serpent's words in the next two verses. Look at verses 4 and 5. The serpent now just states straight up the opposite of what God says in Genesis 2.17. God says, But of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. But the doubt that is sown earlier comes into play. Can we trust God? Why would he withhold? But not only will you not die, the serpent adds to it and says, you will actually see clearly. You will have greater perception. And on top of it, he says, and you will be like God in verse 5. You will be like God. So the serpent says, you won't die. You will have increased knowledge. You'll be like God. Essentially, he's saying, God is holding out on you. 
and holding you back. Now the serpent, again, is operating in half-truths. He's operating in half-truths. He says, you won't die. And we see very clearly in the events that follow Genesis chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, which we'll get to in the next few weeks, we see very clear that Adam and Eve don't die, but this is a result of grace of God. At least they don't die immediately. But death was right around the corner for them, and they lose the garden, which is, in fact, synonymous with death. The serpent says, your eyes will be opened. And we see right at the end of this text this morning that Adam and Eve's eyes are opened. But what they see is not something wonderful, but they see their own nakedness in verse 7. And they experience guilt and they experience shame and they experience embarrassment that requires them then to cover up with the loincloths that they sew out of fig leaves. So these things don't ultimately add up. What the serpent says doesn't ultimately add up when stacked against what God says in Genesis chapter 2. But the compromise is present and gives way to full-fledged sin in verse 6. And so verse 6, the man and the woman, they, they sin. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. Again, three things that we see about the fruit. Trees good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise. And as a result of the serpent's deception and these realizations, the woman goes ahead and eats the fruit. And then she gives some to her husband, who also takes and eats. Now, there are a few things before we move on from this verse that we want to hunker down on. The first is this. Although Adam and Eve, although Eve ate the fruit first and was the target of the snake, Adam shoulders the responsibility for sin. Adam shoulders the responsibility for sin. Paul makes the claim in 1 Timothy 2:14 that Adam was not deceived by the serpent. That is not to say that he did not sin, but rather he acted in blatant and willful disobedience and rebellion. So Adam becomes the one who is responsible. Calvin remarks, For Adam would not have dared oppose God's authority unless he had disbelieved God's word. He was not deceived, but he did not believe God's word given to him directly in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. God's word, he did not believe, and he acted in willful unbelief. Consider then James 4.17, where James writes, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And this is a summary of Adam. Because of these things, Paul says that sin came into the world through one man in Romans 5.12. Britta read it for us a few moments ago. That one man being Adam. And so Adam becomes the responsible party that Scripture points to through the rest of the whole, points back to Adam as the one through whom sin entered the world. 
The second thing to note is that Eve gave the fruit to Adam, and this builds on that first idea, but the second thing is that Eve gave the fruit to Adam and that his proximity to the situation is, quote, close. All of the times that you see the word you in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, those first five verses where we have the interaction between the woman and the serpent, all of the you's there are plural, which heavily implies that Adam is present. And then in verse 6, it says that Adam is in fact with Eve. Right at the end of the verse, she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. But again, the text does not say that Adam is also deceived along with Eve. His eating of the fruit was, again, willful rebellion rooted in disbelief of God's word. The third thing then to note before we move to verse 7 is that the reverse ordering of things results in compromise and sin. The reverse ordering of things here results in compromise and sin. We see first that the animals are meant to be subject to Adam and subsequently Eve. But the serpent, right at the beginning of verse 1, puts himself in a position of authority. And he undermines the proper order by going to to Eve. No animal should be dictating or questioning the proper order of things, which in fact the serpent does. But we also see that Adam's role is is subverted by the serpent going to Eve directly. We said this a moment ago. Adam should have spoken up when he heard the discrepancies between the serpent's words and between God's. And the discrepancies between Eve's words and God's. But he ultimately hangs his wife out to dry, and he did not exercise his role as the spiritual leader here. Paul again picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, when he writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Adam failed to love his wife by leading her to God's word in the midst of the serpent's deception. Adam fails to lead Eve to God's word in the midst of deception. But he rather he goes along with it willfully, despite knowing the right thing to do. So this disruption of God's created order leaves the door wide open for the sin that we see that's engaged in in verse 6. One more thing that I want to note before we get to verse 7. And this is the final thing I want to say. There is a point that is sometimes made from this verse. And the point being that women are more easily deceived than men based on Genesis 3.6, even to this day. That is not in the text, and it is the wrong conclusion to draw from this text. It is the wrong conclusion to draw. The serpent does not approach Eve because of her apparent susceptibility to deceit, but as a subversion to the God-established order. And as the one who did not receive the God-given commands directly, It is an unfortunate reality that some have sought to interpret this text as the fact that women are more easily deceived 
because it leads oftentimes to abuse in the church. And so we see that the act that introduces sin into the world happens in Genesis 3, verse 6. And then we see in verse 7 the immediate impact of, of the sin. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Once the act is completed, sin has immediate consequences. Man and woman's eyes are opened and they acknowledge their nakedness. And so they again sew the fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. And again, the crafty serpent's have truths are revealed. Adam and Eve exchange their innocence for the knowledge and embarrassment of nakedness. And this brings us back to where we started this morning, our understanding, friends, of satisfaction. So we're going to draw a conclusion here, or several conclusions. There's a lot to chew on here, and we've kind of just run through the text and done some explaining and some interpreting, but I want you to walk away with a handful of important things. Consider again with me the nature of food and the satisfaction that it provides. And when the serpent finishes speaking to the woman, she sees that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food, a delight to the eyes, and it is desired to make one wise. But again, she doesn't see, what she doesn't see here is the exchange that's happening. The consequences as the result of this exchange. Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with her environment, and perfect relationship with her husband, Adam also does not see these consequences. The exchange is made simply for a morsel of food, a delightful appearance, and misunderstood wisdom. An eternal satisfaction exchanged for a very, very, very temporary one. And Adam willfully goes along with it. The disruption of order is apparent. The serpent over the woman, the woman over the man, but there is another disruption of order here. Creation over creator. This is the big one. Adam and Eve both opt for a created thing over God himself. Something as measly as fruit caused man to willfully defy God's word. So could it be that you're here this morning and you're opting for measly created things over a creator God? Hoping to find satisfaction here. Friends, you know the things that pull at your, at your heart. And somewhere inside of you tell you that God is holding out on you. Just like this serpent eroded God's word through sowing the seeds of doubt in God's generosity, God gave Adam and Eve the garden. God gave them each other, perfectly suited for one another. God gave them the trees of the garden to eat of. God gave them reminders of who He is and who they are. God gave them so much, overflowing with so much generosity. God blessed Adam and Eve immensely. Unbroken relationship with him, unbroken relationship with each other, and unbroken relationship with creation. But the serpent sowed the seed of doubt in God's generosity. 
Why won't God allow us to eat of that fruit? Maybe God is in fact stingy. Maybe he is holding out on us. And the mindset that leads you to is to seek satisfaction in stuff and not in God. Vehicles and boats and newer houses and bigger garages and electronic devices and unlimited data. Vacations, somewhere less snowy climates. But the root of the hope that is these things is temporary. The root of the hope that these things will satisfy you is ultimately that you don't believe that God is generous towards you. You think that he's withholding something. You think that he hasn't quite given you what you deserve. You think that you're entitled to more. But friends, God is the only true source of satisfaction And his generosity is overflowing to you beyond the point that you could even imagine. And so before we explore that statement, because I want to explore that statement just for one more moment before we're done, but before we get there, be mindful of a few things that this text gives to us very clearly. The first thing is this, don't neglect God's word. That's what led Adam and Eve into the place where they were at the end of Genesis, or in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. They neglected God's word in Genesis 2, 15 through 17 in particular. Eve was susceptible to the deceit of the serpent because she didn't know the command. The serpent quickly eroded her understanding of it. The highlight of God's generosity was stripped away. The significance of the elements that God provided were undermined. And the urgency of the obedience to what God commands was excluded. And Eve added to the command by saying that they were unable to even touch the fruit. But when commands are added to, it signifies a misunderstanding and misrepresentation of God. And his intent. Jesus said this to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. As they added to the commands of God, Jesus said, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move a finger. Jesus meant that they added to the law and missed the point of the commands. Paul says it in Colossians 2 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but get this, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When Eve adds to the command and says, do not touch, or that we should not touch the fruit, she is doing nothing more than submitting to the elemental spirits of the world and doing nothing and adding no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which she freely does in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. Adding to a command and to hedging it seems wise, but Paul says that it does not stop us from indulging in it. And whether it's allowing for God's word to be eroded or added to, both come from a neglect for it. 
Both come from a neglect for it. And so, friends, spend time reading and studying Scripture. Yes, as an individual, but together as a church, again, with other people. Other people will hold you accountable by preventing God's word from being eroded or added to. Buffalo City Church, we have opportunities to do this. Men's and women's Bible studies. This regularly happens in community group settings. There are men and women in this room who would love to sit down with you and read through a book of the Bible with you one-on-one. Women, you know about the upcoming retreats, the many retreats, Pursuit, just a couple weeks. These are intended to help build your Bible literacy. And we make a big deal about the Bible here. and We're not going to stop bugging you about it. We're not going to stop bugging you about the importance of God's Word because we can't even get out of the first three chapters of the Bible before we see the absolute imperative nature of it in the lives of God's people. Another way to avoid neglecting God's Word is to simply memorize it. David says in Psalm 119 verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word needs to reside in your heart. Leaving it on the page will leave you susceptible to the deceit or erosion and addition. When people talk about what a successful church is, they have a lot of definitions. I'm always being marketed to on social media and told that I need to do this or that or whatever to be a successful pastor or to have a successful church. Here's the question that I'm asking. Are people engaging with God's word at Buffalo City Church? Are people engaging with God's word at Buffalo City Church? In Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, you know this. God says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I cannot do anything except fight to trust in nothing other than God's word. Same for you. I can fight to do nothing but trust in God's word to produce results in our lives and in this congregation. And if it's evident to you as a church, fire me. If it's evident to you that I'm doing something else, fire me. The second thing to be mindful of from this text is realize that there isn't anything new under the sun. The deceit of the serpent, the allure of the world, the exchange for the creation over the creator, the erosion of God's word, the addition to God's word, the act of unbelief in God's word, the subversion to God's created order. All of these things are present when sin enters the world and all of them will pull on you this week before this day is even over. There's nothing new under the sun as Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes. Third, Consider the gravity of sin, and I stated it like that, but I think maybe consider the subtlety of sin. The subtlety of sin. 
Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. The King James translates this, the serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field. Sin is objectively terrible, and we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks as we continue in our time in Genesis 3. And we see even more fully the consequences of the violation of God's word in the, in the next verses. That's a preview. And just a moment ago, I said that God's generosity towards you is overflowing beyond the point that you could even imagine. This is where I want to end this morning. God's generosity towards you is overflowing to the point that you cannot even imagine. And that's where this text is driving us. You may be here this morning and you may be thinking, how is that even possible? How could it be possible that God's generosity is poured out on me. You don't know how hard my life is. You don't know what it's like living paycheck to paycheck. My health or the health of a loved one is waning. I just did my taxes and I have to pay in a ton. My friends and family have abandoned me. Friends, God has shown you immeasurable generosity in providing Jesus Christ. All of those things pale in comparison to the generosity of God demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. You, in Adam, were going to die separated from God with no hope. And God sent Jesus, emptying heaven of its greatest treasure. And Jesus stood in for you and endured the consequences of sin so that you might be made right with God and become a guaranteed recipient of the promised resurrection from the dead to spend eternity in paradise recovered. Don't be deceived this week. Sin and Satan in the world may cause you to question God. Is he stingy? Is he withholding? But the person and the work of Jesus Christ stand as the single greatest piece of evidence testifying to God's immeasurable generosity shown towards you. And it leaves no question. My hope is that we, Buffalo City Church, would increasingly believe that God is exceedingly generous. And that we would drill deep into God's word. And that as a result, we would be wholly satisfied in him as the creator and the sustainer of all things. Let's pray.